0: standing for the reading of scripture this morning, which you'll find in the gospel of Saint uh, Mark chapter three. We continue with the exposition as we come to Mark chapter three, verses seven through twelve this morning. Let us hear and attend to the reading of God's word given to us, kept for us, and through which we hear the voice of Christ. Mark three, verses seven through twelve. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. A close study and exposition of Scripture is an invaluable benefit against the human tendency to sensationalize Jesus. Now, I agree, Jesus was spectacular. Jesus was one of a kind. Jesus was unique. Jesus is the one and only God-man Savior sent from God. But there is a human tendency to sensationalize Jesus as a popular celebrity or a folk hero or a superstar. And we can find very clearly from Scripture that Jesus would not identify in that way. Jesus did not identify himself as a popular celebrity, as some kind of folk hero or as a superstar. Now there are two observations from this passage in Mark 3, 7-12 that I think are helpful. One is Jesus planning for using a little boat if it was needed for safety and escape from being crushed by the crowd because he was not detached or unapproachable from people. I hope that, that, that just passing note catches your attention. That Jesus says, and we'll look more closely at it, that this little boat needed to be prepared. Uh, I I think that detail could very easily be overlooked, but we want to talk more about it. And then the second thing is also Jesus silencing the unclean spirits, the demons, disavowing their proof of his being Son of God, and thus dismissing making ministry some kind of show-off spiritual theater or drama. And I think that's just the opposite of how many people think today. They think we've got to have some kind of show-off theater. We've got to really wow people. We want to get their attention. And one of the ways that we can do that is having some kind of public display of power over the spirits and over demons and exorcisms and that kind of thing. Jesus does just the opposite. So there's some important lessons for us to learn about that, to teach and to guide us so that we don't get sucked into deception. And start looking at Christian ministry as looking for popular celebrity and celebrity preachers. Or folk heroes that are of the people and are looking for some kind of uh, baptized Robin Hood that cares about uh, uh, people and social justice more than what the gospel is of justification from your sin and guilt to God. And then the superstar mentality. We're so given to it. Everything has to be over the top, doesn't it? We have to be wowed. And so what do we start looking for in church? Something that will wow us. And Jesus says, that's not what you should be looking for. So both of these observations are appropriate applications to the gospel ministry so that Christian ministers should be approachable and among the people they serve. So away with these celebrity ministers who have bodyguards and who uh, are set apart and untouchable. And they expect people to bow down to them as they walk among them. That's nothing like Christ. And then also, in terms of Christian warfare, spiritual warfare is not publicly fighting with demons. So we need to look to Scripture. We need to be taught. We need to hold to what Scripture says and what it means to be Christ alike. Now Mark chapter 3 in our continued exposition of this gospel is about the gospel... Source being Jesus as the Son of God. The source of the gospel is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. That's the main theme that I want you to see in chapter 3. That Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. Now last week in verses 1-6 through we saw that a new covenant family starts... Our new covenant life starts with a saved life and that is by supernatural power over death now in that passage jesus didn't raise someone from the dead we needed to look at it more closely because what was demonstrated to us in verses one through six was the results of original sin a man had a withered hand by accident or possibly disease i think it was more likely that it was by accident from the the grammar of the text and here was a man who was in need Where did that injury come from? It came because of the fall. It it came because of the results of original sin. The things that happen to us that affect our body by way of injury or disease and death, those are the results of original sin. It was not originally intended to be so. And so here was a man. We're not told that there was anything sinful in his specific action that, that injured or destroyed his hand so that he couldn't use it. That no doubt affected his taking care of himself or his family if he had one. I told you there was no workers' comp or or, or insurance back then. So this man was really in need. And Jesus doesn't say that there was anything that caused him to have that injured hand because of sin, but it's the results of original sin in the world. And that happens to you and to me. Even as Christian believers, even as the children of God, there are things that befall our body in our life. Not because of some specific sin because we live with the results of original sin. But Jesus came to destroy and to repair and to redeem us from original sin. And then with the Pharisees and they're plotting against Jesus and their intent on destroying Him, it's recorded in the text for us, Jesus also points out to us the responsibility of actual personal sins. And so in verses 1 through 6, we, we see that this new covenant life starts with a saved life. We must be supernaturally saved. By the power of Christ. That's true for everybody. If you're going to be in the family of God, it's got to be by a supernatural act of God. You can't save yourself. Not by good works, not by good intentions, not by uh, any kind of public display, but only through faith in Christ. And then we come to verses 7-12 through this morning. A new covenant life is not by human bloodline. It's not by being a part of your people or who your people are or where you're from. It's not by human bloodline. It's by the Holy Spirit's adoption through new birth, being a supernatural power greater than unclean spirits. And I want you to see that connection in verses 7 through 12 this morning. I want you to hear that very loud and clearly because we still have that hanging around us. We still have this notion that somehow it's by who we are and our people and who's come before us. And I certainly believe in God's covenant promises. But God's covenant promises are not a presumption of salvation. They're a good hope. You can't be saved by your parents' faith. You can't save your children by your faith. We have a good, well-founded hope that under the means of grace, the Holy Spirit will use that. And those whom we love and pray for will also come into the family of God. But it has to be a supernatural act of God it's greater than the power of other unclean spirits and false religions and false beliefs. But it's not by your connection in terms of your ancestry, in terms of how good your parents were, not even if your daddy was a preacher. That doesn't save you. And so uh, this is what we're looking at here in verses 7 through 12. In verses 7 and 8, follow along if you will. Verses 7 and 8 But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Edumia and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So Jesus previously used the seaside for public ministry and calling disciples. We've seen this before in chapter 1 and 2 where Jesus went down by the seaside and was ministering there. And, and, and um, multitudes, crowds came to him. And from those crowds, Jesus called disciples. He called fishermen. He called um, uh, Levi, Matthew, the, the uh, tax collector. We know it previously in chapters 1 and 2, we've already seen Jesus ministering down by the seashore. And so not only synagogue goers are called by the gospel ministry. Remember, Jesus is in and out of the, of the uh, synagogue. Sometimes he's in a, in a house that was provided for a basis of ministry in the town of Capernaum. And then he went to other towns around. He was in and out of the synagogues. He was in and out of town. He was often down by the seashore for many people that were gathered there, not because they were on vacation like you and I think of vacation, but it was a main commercial hub of the area. And so it was not only synagogue goers who were called by the gospel message. I I was thinking primarily in chapter 2 of Matthew, the tax collector uh, known as Levi, And how Jesus called him from his tax booth to come and follow. And and Jesus saved him. And Matthew followed him. And Matthew invited his friends. He was a wealthy man. He invited them to his house with Jesus and his disciples that they too might hear the gospel. These were people that were not well received in polite society. They were scorned by the self-righteous because they were tax collectors. And they were people of the street and and prostitutes and the like. Jesus tells us, I mean the scriptures tell us, that that he was with them telling them and witnessing to them of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. It's not only synagogue goers that heard the gospel and were saved and followed Jesus. By the message of Jesus' gospel, different people from different places are called and saved as a part of the faith family of God. The locations that are listed here are literally from all around. If you were to look at a map of the ones that are listed here, you would find that they come from east and west, from north and south. I think that's a beautiful tib- tribute and demonstration of even what we confess this morning. And we continue to believe and confess from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Not just in Jesus' time. Not in the time of the psalmist. Up to our time. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. We see the enemy here in the unclean spirits and those uh, directed by the devil and those who are of the world, unbelievers, uh, the self righteous, those who are plotting to murder Jesus in their own self righteousness, the Pharisees and the Herodians, In, in our section from last week. Fighting with the world, against the world, being delivered and redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and being gathered from out of all lands. Look at us this morning. From all around. We're from all around here. From east and west, from north and south. That should be thrilling to us. We should pray, even as Elder Ray prayed this morning, more and more that the Lord would bring in from east and west, from north and south. Bring into this place to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be adopted into the family of faith. To be redeemed and to seeing of the redemption that we have through Christ our Redeemer and rejoice and show the world a microcosm of the kingdom of God. It's not of this world. Verses 9 and 10, we go on in this passage. So he, that is Jesus, told his disciples that a small boat or a little boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. So Jesus arranges a little boat for safety precautions because he personally moved among the pressing crowds, healing many. And I don't want you to overlook this. Uh, this is a diminutive form in Greek. It, it can be used to indicate a, a vessel that was smaller than a, a common fishing vessel. And I think that's instructive. But also this diminutive form can be used in an endearing way as something that was personally owned. Uh, Today we might see, say, your personal watercraft. Uh, When we talk about jet skis or canoes or kayaks, your personal watercraft. And I think this is instructive for us. I think we shouldn't overlook it. There's a reason. And I, I take the Holy Scriptures word by word as having been given to us and are valuable to us. So once again, someone unnamed helped provide for Jesus' ministry needs. Did you pick up on that? Jesus says, now, take this little boat. And as I'm going along the the seashore here and the people are pressing upon me, and I think this was a moving entourage. It wasn't like Jesus was at one stable place. And we sometimes uh, think of of, uh, maybe Jesus being pushed out in the boat and and kind of preaching on the shore there as an amphitheater. But that's not the description here. The description here is that he's moving along through the crowd, right on the edge of the water, and that uh, the crowd is pressing around him. And so Jesus says this this little boat, someone unnamed allowed this little boat, this little personal watercraft to be used uh, for Jesus to say, if I have to jump in it real quick, because this was not like a school field trip or a tour group. Have you seen those before? Maybe you've been at a museum or historical site or somewhere. Or maybe you've been part of a tour group or certainly part of a school field trip where everybody had to stay together and uh, maybe you had a buddy system and things like that where everything was organized and everything was paced. That's not what's happening. This is more like a mob. And Jesus is moving along the shoreline and they're pressing upon him. Have you ever seen a video of these... in, in? uh, same sales that they have that start like at midnight after Thanksgiving or whatever people uh, are by the glass doors and when the doors open like at Walmart or whatever, a mob rushes in and somebody trips and everybody starts going down like dominoes a- and then a fray or a frias or whatever you want to call call it begins to ensue well that 's more of the intent of what 's here. Jesus is being pressed upon. People are rushing up. People are trying to touch him and grab a hold. They want to be healed. I think, as I told you last week, that Jesus' healing was an outward demonstration of his inward redemption. Does that mean that everyone that Jesus outwardly healed was saved? I I can't make that claim. I want to think so. But I know this. Jesus was more about salvation than he was about physical healing. His physical healing was a demonstration of his power. And of his ability and willingness to save and to redeem. And so I I believe that when Jesus was walking along the shore there, he wasn't passing out uh, uh, some kind of um, healing candy. Oh, here, here, you take this for your withered hand. Oh, you take this for your bum knee. Oh, you take this for your bad back. No. I believe Jesus was preaching the gospel. I believe he was calling people to repentance They were reaching out. They were grabbing a hold of Him. I I believe that that they were grabbing in faith. They were reaching out in faith. It was a, a visible display of their inward heart's transformation. That they believed in Jesus. They believed Jesus was able to save Him. When you take this bread and you take this cup this morning, do you believe Jesus can save you? Why should we believe it different for people in the past? We take in faith. That's the main thing that we emphasize. This bread and this cup can't save you. They are outward elements that demonstrate what must happen of an inward reality of a supernatural salvation that you must believe in Jesus by faith. You must receive Him by faith. Just like you reach out for this bread or you reach out for this cup. You've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. I saw an interesting kind of poster picture that was put on Facebook recently that got my attention. It had kind of a gruesome... Skeleton. The skeleton, I mean, it, it didn't look pleasant. It was like, a, I don't know if it was a real skeleton, but it looked like a real skeleton. And then on that skeleton, head, ribs, was a beautifully wrapped gift box. And the caption was, just open it. Just open it. You get the point, don't you? The dead cannot save themselves. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We cannot save ourselves. That was a very poignant picture that demonstrated what God told the prophet Ezekiel. And he said, Lord, you know if these dry bones can live. And the demonstration was, God can bring the dead to life. And that's what's going on here. Jesus walking by the seashore and the spiritually dead are flocking to him in faith. He's preaching the gospel and they're reaching out in faith to be healed. But more importantly than their physical ailments and troubles, is the release of sin's guilt and the restoration of the redeemed of the Lord. That's what I believe. That's what I believe was going on here. So Jesus' safety precautions is theologically instructive. Why did Jesus then feel like he needed a little boat in case he got crushed or he could be drowned? Can you think of that? Can you think of the edge of the water there? And the the crowd rushes upon Him and and they they tussle and they push and they go deeper out into the water and all of a sudden uh, somebody trips and they all fall down. You can drown in a foot of water. And so Jesus takes safety precautions and it's theologically instructive to us. It reveals His true humanity. He could be physically injured or killed even by an accident. He did exercise divine, supernatural authority and power, but it was by the Holy Spirit acting through His human nature, His true humanity, by faith and by the providence of His Heavenly Father. Jesus never acted in His divine powers for His own personal benefit. Remember that in the wilderness? When He wouldn't listen to the devil's deception. He wouldn't turn the rocks into bread. Could He do that? Of course He could do that. But he wouldn't do it for his own benefit. Remember? So Jesus never acted through his divine powers and the Holy Spirit acting through him. He never acted for his own benefit. Not even for saving his life. The devil said, jump off this uh, uh, pinnacle of the temple. Because the scriptures say the angels have charge over you lest you even uh, trip and fall. Jesus would not do it. He would not act in terms of His divine powers for His own benefit, even to save His life. He trusted providentially His heavenly Father. Look, we need that kind of encouragement. We need to see that in the life of the Lord Jesus. And His desire to have this little boat handy was because He could be injured or killed by accident or by the plottings of men to murder Him. Do you remember the end of verse 6? The Pharisees and the Herodians started plotting how they could destroy him, intending to murder Jesus. Jesus lived by faith in his humanity. He lived trusting the providence of his heavenly Father, especially concerning the death threats and the evil plottings of men and the devil. You need to take that with you today. You need to take with you that we, like Jesus, live by faith in the providence of God. He protects us. He protects us from accident. He protects us from evil plotting. Do you worry about that? It's sometimes hard not to, isn't it? We get so taken up with the the world and what we hear in terms of the bad news in the world. Uh, I saw this week one of my favorite little local restaurants, uh, one of the little feed troughs. People were there eating their meal. And I don't know the whole story, but uh, someone got disoriented and hit the gas rather than the brakes and ran their car into the restaurant and killed one person and sent another one to the hospital. I don't even know. I don't even want to know what table they were sitting at because I, I've sat by the windows. I've sat by every window in that restaurant. Man, accidents happen. Who, who can know? Who, who went over and got some fried chicken livers and expected that a car was going to come crashing through the window and they're going to be in eternity in the blink of an eye? Do you ever think about that? I, I don't really think about that. I was driving back. Uh, down 78 just this week. Two cars in front of me. On the on the two lanes going uh, back towards Snellville. All of a sudden an SUV swerves over into the right lane. And a white pickup swerves off the road. It was almost looked like they were uh, synchronized swimming. Roop! Like that. And then you know what I saw? A stupid squirrel. A stupid squirrel throwing its tail up running back and forth. This SUV just out of... Um, reaction tried to swerve to miss that squirrel if that pickup truck had not swerved I don't know if I'd be talking to you this morning because I was right behind him it took that long for that to happen accidents happen beloved to any one of us it can happen not because God isn't watching over us Jesus knew that an accident was possible so he asked for a little boat that could give him a hop, skip, and a jump away from the crowd into the, into the water from the shore if he needed to. We don't think about that, do we? We don't think about Jesus taking precautions. But Jesus prayed. He knew that there were evil men and spirits who were plotting against Him. He knew that they were intent on His destruction and His murder. But He trusted in faith the providence of His heavenly Father. He lived by faith. He gave us the example of trusting Our Heavenly Father in all things. Not living in fear. And not being coward and afraid of our own shadow. But trusting our Heavenly Father. And I think there's a tremendous lesson for us in that. In Jesus asking for this little boat. And Jesus demonstrates that the Gospel ministry is up close and personal. And often physically, mentally, and spiritually demanding. In caring for all kinds of people. You know, because it happened before. Jesus could speak the word and heal people. We have other accounts of where uh, servants were sent to him. And and Jesus was going to go to uh, Jairus and and he sent his servants and said, Lord, you don't need to come. You just speak the word. I'm I'm a centurion. I'm a man who has authority and who has people working for me. I tell them to go here go do that and they do it. Lord, you don't have to come. You just say the word and it will be done. We know Jesus had that kind of authority and power. But here by the seashore, what did Jesus do? Did he detach himself from the people and go out in the boat and kind of just wave his hands around and say, you be healed, you be No, he was on the shore being pressed and jostled and and crowded. I mean, I think it was even uncomfortable. As I told you, throngs of people were reaching out to grab him. I don't think they were playing Goose Goose Duck or whatever, where you just give a little gentle tap when the children play. These people were desperate. Do we understand how desperate they were? Do we understand how desperate our need is? I think oftentimes spiritually we don't understand how desperate the need of the world is. We're so caught up with physical things. But here Jesus demonstrates to us his presence among the needy people. And as I told you, I believe they were reaching out to Jesus in faith and. You can disagree with me, but I believe that Jesus was preaching the gospel to them, and I believe that his primary mission was redemption, to save them, and to demonstrate that in his power to heal them. Look at verses 11 and 12. And the unclean spirits, were, uh, wherever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they uh, should not make him known. Now this is curious too. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirits, forbidding them from revealing his divine identity in order to keep the gospel pure. Okay? We've seen this before. We've seen Jesus rebuking the unclean spirits and not receiving a testimony from them, although they were already doing it. But I want you to understand why. He rebukes these unclean spirits. He forbids them from revealing his divine identity in order to keep the gospel pure. Jesus' authority and power over the demons was publicly witnessed. We have it in chapter 1. We have it, uh, again, it will come up here in chapter 3. And even what the the detractors will be saying, uh, exactly. They'll be saying that the gospel is corrupt because it's witnessed to by the demons. And Jesus has a whole section coming up in verses 20 and following dealing with that. But here, Jesus forbids the demons, the unclean spirits, from further testifying about him, from making a scene... Um, He restricted them from their sensationalized drama and forbade them from revealing and doing more things about Him. And once again, you have to look at the text pretty closely for this because what we read here is that those who are possessed of unclean spirits, when they would come up to Jesus, they would fall down. That's what the word means, prostrate. prostrate. They were laid out in His presence. They They couldn't take it. They were like forced down, and we're told that crying out actually means they croaked or they screamed. That's pretty unsettling, isn't it? Can you imagine being a part of that? Where there are people coming up and falling down at Jesus and they're crying out and croaking and sound like something otherworldly? I know Hollywood's tried to play on that, but it's real here. And what does Jesus do? Jesus forbids them. He doesn't want their testimony. He doesn't need their testimony. It doesn't make it more real and more powerful that he has powers over the demons. He knows he does. Do you know he does? He doesn't have to prove it to us. So, Jesus' gospel does not need the world, the flesh, or the devil's acknowledgement or public confrontation for validation or or to reveal secret things. I've told you this before and I'm going to stand by it as long as the Lord gives me breath and, and... mind. The only spirit you need to know about is the Holy Spirit. You don't need to know about playing around with secret knowledge and unclean spirits and all this other uh, ungodly stuff. I know people do it. I believe the demons are real, but I believe they've been defeated by Jesus. And I believe they have no power over the children of God. I don't even believe in demon possession today. You can disagree with me. I believe there is demonic influence But I believe Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. That's what we're told in the Bible. And so I believe He has restricted them. Just like Jesus restricted the demons here from telling more things or making a scene. I mean, it was a scene enough that they were falling down and croaking. You are the Son of God. Jesus said, be done with that. That doesn't improve anything. That doesn't impress anybody. I don't need your witness, you unclean spirits. Be silent. You're not going to tell... Secret things. You're not going to try to uh, get into people's minds, because the devil and the demons are deceivers. They're not going to give you the truth. You know when the demons were saying here that Jesus is the Son of God, they weren't saying that out of faith. They were croaking that out of irresistible presence of the divine. And Jesus says, "I don't need you. Be silent. Shut your mouth. And be away with you." That's what I want to say. You have fear about demons and the devil? What does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Fill your prayers with the Word of God. Listen to the singing of the redeemed with Scripture songs. Psalms and hymns and and Scripture songs. That's what Scripture tells us to do. So Jesus would not allow the gospel to be promoted by evil witnesses because false teaching is about more than mistaken, confused, erroneous, or heretical ideas. Even the devil misquotes scripture in order to try to deceive. And here's another thing we need to be very careful about. And that is the purity of the gospel. We sometimes, I think, want to be kind of easygoing when it comes, well, people are just mistaken. They're just kind of mistaken about that. Maybe there's a little gospel there, but they're, they're all, you, know, a little mistaken. or I think they're just confused. When it comes to the ethics and the authority of Scripture and the, the things that God identifies and that, that God is commanding, well, people maybe are just a little confused about that. Or, you know, people just make mistakes erroneously, and there are heretical ideas. Now, I know people can truly be saved and be children of God who are uh, confused who are mistaken, who have some heretical teachings. There there are some of those things. But there are essential things that cannot be let go. And of course we're talking about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about redemption through faith alone, by His sacrifice on the cross, by His power of resurrection from the dead. We're talking about the supernatural saving power of God. Those things cannot be compromised. Someone starts telling you that the gospel is about uh, how you can be a better person in this way or that way. Or the gospel is about helping other people. That's not the gospel. That might be some good works that the Bible says are good to do. But they will not save you. Salvation is a supernatural act of God's grace. And that's what brings us into the family of God. We must be adopted by the Spirit of God. Jesus' salvation purpose means individually saving people of all kinds from sin's death in this world. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and the authorities in spiritual places. The demons, the devil. He disarmed them. He he destroyed them, their works and their powers. They're still real. They have not been finally judged and and, uh, removed yet. But they are severely limited. As I've told you before, the devil is like an outlaw on the run. And demons are chained up like mad dogs. They're restricted. They're limited. Jesus gives us the indication of that here. And He more fully accomplished that by His resurrection and ascension. He put them to an open shame and He triumphed over them. And that's what we're here to worship and to celebrate. We have a supernatural salvation through the purity of the Gospel and a power that's greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've read this before, haven't you? Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. you believe that? And so I'm going to ask you, are, are you going to be like the crowd of the redeemed from north and south and east and west? Are you going to reach out in faith to take this bread and to take this cup this morning? Not because it saves you, but because it's a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit guiding you by faith and you saying, only Jesus can save me. That's what this bread and this cup means. Only Jesus can save me. But Jesus has saved me with an everlasting salvation. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we say so by our communing together. By the words of institution. We in faith partake together because we are alive in Christ. And so you know what the Scriptures say to us about this Lord's Supper. That you are to have identified with Jesus in baptism. He tells us that's that's another way of visibly demonstrating. And here's covenant promises. You could have been baptized as a covenant infant. You may have been baptized as a believer later in life. But you have identified with Jesus in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian baptism in the great mystery and wonder of God condescending and making Himself known for our salvation.